0: This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hello, welcome to the Australian Museum's Amplify podcast. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO And I get to interview some of our best and brightest each week here at the Australian Museum from our scientists, our collection managers and specialists to bring you their stories and some of the hidden gems that exist behind the scenes here at the Australian Museum. And today I'm very fortunate to be joined by one of our fantastic staff who's been here at the museum, goodness me, for 18 years, the wonderful Paul Flemons. Welcome along, Paul. Thanks, Kim. Lovely to be here. It's great to see you. Now, Paul currently is the manager of our Digital Collections and Citizen Science. We're going to talk about both of those things today. But before we get
1: there, you were quite a rugby player, weren't you, once? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, yeah. Um, When I was, up until I was about 21, I played competitive rugby. um, First grade for Manly and Australian schoolboys and Australian 21s. And, um, yeah, it was a great time. Very, very special part of my life. So did you ever think
0: about becoming a professional rugby union player?
1: It was right on the cusp of the professional uh, period back then. So if I'd waited a couple more years, I could have become professional. But really, uh, professional wasn't my gig, I guess. I was doing it for the love of rugby and um, my life moved on a bit, I guess, and I became more interested in my studies and and work and stuff like that.
0: Sure, as it does often. So, but uh, I've got to ask you now, so do you support a local rugby team?
1: Uh, Manly Rugby, the, War- the Waratahs, Manly Rugby League, and of course the Wallabies, although they haven't been doing that well lately.
0: No. Uh, well, moving on from that, as you say, here at the Australian Museum, as I said, for 18 years. Uh, so how did you end up here, Paul?
1: Um, I began my career when I finished uni. I went, and went to Orange and worked for the Department of Agriculture, uh, following in my father's footsteps, actually. He worked for the Department of Agriculture. And um so I worked in Orange for a couple of years, and then I got uh, seconded over to National Parks and Wildlife Service, and I worked there for four or five years, and then um, uh, the job came up at the museum, and jobs in museums are very rare indeed, and particularly in my area of work. Uh, it, was very, it was kind of one of the first positions of its type in Australia and possibly around the world to do with geographic information systems. And um, I applied for the position and was a little bit surprised to get it. And um, That was a long time ago, 18 years ago, and it's been a fantastic place to work and I I haven't looked back or regretted a day of moving away from National Parks, which itself was a great place to work as well.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how creative you can actually be in the technology space related to museums.
1: It's a combination of science and creativity and um, in particular for me, I've had a lot of, um, I guess, independence to some degree about um, the projects I've run and being in a, a kind of an innovative sphere around uh, data and the the web and uh, collections was kind of a, a unique combination of um, opportunities, I guess, which has allowed me to create projects which nobody else around the world has done at the time, and um, kind of uh, create a niche for the Australian Museum as well as myself in terms of what's called biodiversity informatics. And um, so,
0: biodiversity informatics. Yeah. Now, come on, explain <laughs> that.
1: So, biodiversity uh, is the. Um, uh, that's a hard term to 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 define, but it's the breadth and width of uh, animal life and plant life and uh, all the kingdoms of life. and um informatics is is related to information about those, I guess, so it's it's self-explanatory to some degree when you break down the two words, but it's yeah, as a as a phrase, it's very um, opaque, I guess.
0: Well, as a discipline, it's probably best explained through something like the Atlas of Living Australia that you've been intrinsically involved in.
1: That's right. So the Atlas um, uh, combines data from different institutions, museums, um, environment agencies, uh, the, the public from all around Australia into one place. So it's kind of a one-stop shop to go and look for biodiversity data and allows you to do some analysis of that data and really understand uh, what the data is all about. So that's a good example of uh, biodiversity informatics at work.
0: Well, it's sort of a really interesting field to be in now in museums because technology is leading us into so many new areas and new ways of exploring the use of the data that's been collected by scientists and could be collected in the future and really applying that information in a very practical way so that we can share it with audiences everywhere.
1: Yeah, the beauty of the the stage we're at now is that collections that are many hundreds of years old will now be able to make available not just to the local people who can get into the museum, but people all around the world that do research on particular taxonomic groups, particular animal animal groups, and um, everybody has access to our collections once we make them digital and uh, the tools for analysis of those, are looking at uh, change in um, the the distribution of these animals over time, the impacts of climate change on different organisms and different groups of organisms. Museum collections facilitate that in a way that no other, um, I guess, data sources can.
0: It's really extraordinary how you've looked at that and thought, well, how can we actually digitise this extraordinary collection of 18 million specimens and objects at the Australian Museum? And, of course, we don't have a huge funding source that says, here, guys, go off and employ lots of people to do that. So you came up with a solution, Paul, five years ago. Do you want to tell us about Digivol?
1: Yeah, so um, four or five years ago, it was actually five years ago because we had a celebration recently of five years, um, it was very difficult to find funding to do uh, digitisation of our collections, and I came up with the idea in conjunction with a couple of other people here at the museum to um, uh, engage volunteers because volunteers have always been very actively involved in museums. so we thought of the opportunity to engage volunteers in actually digitising our collections in a two-stage process. First stage was to have them take photos of the objects and their labels. So
0: these are the volunteers who actually physically come, come on into site. the site., yeah. that's right.
1: so. Um, uh, we created a special group and a special lab um, called the Digibole Lab. And so we have 70 volunteers coming each week to take photos of objects. So
0: that's 70 volunteers. 70, yes. And who are they?
1: <laughs> they're people from all walks of life, from students. So we've got people uh, under 20 in our group, right up to people. I think our oldest is 85. Extraordinary. Neville, yeah, he's 85. And um, it's, yeah, they're, they're an extraordinary bunch of people. A lot of them very highly educated. They're people that want to contribute both to the museum but to science as well. And the the social side is kind of secondary, but it's still very important to them.
0: It always is with volunteering, isn't it, that you get that great network of new friends and people who share a common passion for something. And it is passion because many of our collection items were collected during the 1800s and early 1900s. And of course they have handwritten labels, often in beautiful script, but often very hard to decipher.
1: That's right. And, and the people that get involved with these collections um, through volunteering are uh, amazed at the things they discover every day and the, they feel very privileged to be able to handle these things in, in helping us digitise them. And then we have the online component where once once they've been uh, photographed in, on site, we upload those images to the web. And we have people from all around the world transcribing that handwritten, um, those handwritten labels.
0: So they're sitting at home or at their office, at their desk, at their computer, and when they've got a spare hour or so, they log on and they see what's been uploaded and what they help transcribe the label by re-keying it in. Is that it?
1: we call it volunteering in your pyjamas because that was one of our <laughs> <laughs> catchphrases. Maybe we need special Australian <laughs> Museum pyjamas. Yeah. Digivolve pyjamas. Yeah. Um, and oh, um, so they're, they're transcribing from home. They're usually not a spare hour, but they actually build into their lives. So a lot of those people will set aside uh, an hour or two a day um, every day. We have people transcribing every day. And... Um, Uh, seven days a week and we even have some people that come into the museum to volunteer here taking the photos who also then go home and transcribe at home.
0: Uh, It's just extraordinary and it's a really practical way you can volunteer and uh, give something back I guess to the community but you learn so much by doing it at the same time and that's I guess the added benefit too. Now as you said we just celebrated the fifth anniversary of Digivol and I remember giving out an award with you to uh, one of our volunteers. I think she
1: Megan, Megan. yeah, yeah. she's done over 70,000, 75,000 transcriptions online. So a transcription task online might be a two-page diary, uh, sorry, a two-page... Field notes. Field from a field note where they're transcribing all the text or it might be a label from a a specimen. Um, And she's been easily, well, our most prolific person in, in doing that. So she comes into the museum... Uh, on a Wednesday, and then she goes home for the rest of the week and transcribes every day for us.
0: So, Paul, if people want to volunteer for Digivol who are listening, can they go to the website and look it up? And... They can
1: go to the Australian Museum website and look up Digivol, or uh, volunteering, and there's also a website online, www.digivol.org, which well, they can then um, join the Digivol community and ta- start contributing.
0: I mean, it's such an innovative project, but I guess one of the most exciting things about it too, apart from helping share our collection with so many people is that your Digivol concept has now been adopted by some leading institutions around the world where you've set a new benchmark, I think.
1: Well, yes, certainly it's recognised as uh, one of the leading projects in the world the Smithsonian. In the U.S., has taken it on. It's taken on the same model for the uh, transcribing that which is
0: just extraordinary, really, because people sort of hold the Smithsonian up as being the leader. But here, little on Australia, we've managed to put this great project together that's been adopted by them, and I think by Kew Gardens too in the UK. Kew
1: Gardens, New York Botanic Gardens, South Australian, sorry, South African uh, National Biodiversity Institute, um, Belgium are, are looking at taking on as well. Um so we've got seven countries and 22 organizations 22 now yeah, wow around the world.
0: Congratulations. I mean that's a wonderful thing because if people can imagine as these objects and specimens have been collected here well over well next year of course we turn 190 years of age so during that period they've come from many remote communities sometimes and countries and this is a great way to share our collection with a new audience and reconnect audiences with objects from their local communities as well.
1: No, absolutely, and and people are discovering new things for us, and they're they they're connecting with something and a community and a and a, a an addition to their lives, I guess, which enriches their lives and provides scientific data for us um, to carry on our research.
0: Now, one of the things that you are also responsible here at the museum are our expeditions, and of course, uh, we've we've got an expedition going later this year to the Solomon Islands and we're planning one next year for Lord Howe Island as part of our 190th anniversary. We're revisiting some of those major expeditions the Australian Museum has done in the past, comparing the data sets. Now, I know you yourself have been on an expedition in the past here at Lord Howe Island.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, I think it was in 2002. Um, I uh, joined Chris Reed here from the museum, a beetle taxonomist, and we stayed on top of Mount Gower on Lord Howe Island, which is... About 800 metres above sea level, so we had to walk up there with all our equipment. The igloo. That's is, right, there are those sorry. two
0: beautiful mountains at the end yeah. of Lord Howe Mount Lidgebird and Mount Gower, and uh, if you look up a photograph of Lord Howe, they just stand out, they're magnificent, and of course they hold such unique wildlife up there, don't they?
1: Yeah, and we were there to discover what uh, sort of insects, uh, particularly beetles, were were uh, living on top of Lord Howe Lord Island on, on Mount Gower. And we stayed in an igloo up there which was perched on the edge of this 800-meter-high cliff. And um, it wasn't uh, held down by any ropes or anything. So it was just this plastic igloo. And looking at it, you thought, I'm not going to sleep in that because it looks like it'll blow off the edge of the cliff. And it gets quite windy on the top of Mount Gower. And um, so we'd be lying in bed uh, trying to go to sleep at night. And you'd hear the wind coming from the other side of the island like a a train. Mm -hmm. And then you'd tense yourself for when it hit the igloo, uh, worried that it was going to be blown off the, (laughs) the edge of the cliff, which was only five meters away. Wow. So a bit, a bit scary. You have to uh, risk your life
0: sometimes, <laughs> don't you, uh, in, the, in the quest for science. But for those who are listening, Lord Howe Island sits about 700 kilometres northeast of Sydney out in the Tasman Sea, reaching out into the Pacific Ocean. And, of course, the Tasman Sea is notorious for its weather patterns. And so sometimes Lord Howe can have the most magical, perfect subtropical Pacific weather and other times it can be a ferocious storm uh, blasting through there, so I can imagine being up on the top of Mount Gower must have been a challenge.
1: It was, it was a wonderful challenge for And, and guess what, year.
0: Paul? We're going to send you back there. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> Make you hang out again on the top like that and see what specimens you can collect this time. But those expeditions are really fantastic because it does point us back to the work that the museum did, you know, for the last one ninety years. And mm. as you said before, that it gives us great insights into changing biodiversity and the impacts of climate change. Uh, what, what's the thing here at the museum that you've really gained the most from over the years, from your involvement in all the different projects? What's the thing where you've gone, you know, Paul, apart from Digivol, obviously, which is extraordinary?
1: Ah, it's a very good question. Because
0: um... you've been involved in so many great projects here and worked with so many other scientists and you've been able to develop the whole geospatial mapping technology. What is it that's made you really go wow?
1: Um, I think it's just being involved with um, the scientific community and developing new tools for facilitating science and making um, our data and our science available to the world. So um, when I first started here, we did uh, some work around the Southeast Forests uh, process, where we did a lot of survey work uh, in the North and Southeast Forests, and we um, and we we uh, developed data sets for those areas, which were important in defining national parks and determining decisions around those and uh, then moving on to developing uh, web uh, websites for making our collections available to the world through um, web mapping and mod- modelling of uh, species distributions from the data that's in our collections.
0: And that's so important here at the Australian Museum to share our knowledge data and information with people all over the world and we're going to be doing that as well through some exciting citizen science initiatives in the future which Paul's also overseeing so Paul we'll get you back to hear about those in the future thank you so much Paul Flemons outstanding rugby player and scientist here at the Australian Museum thanks for sharing your story with us This has been an Australian Museum podcast.